had two scripture readings today and literally the one Ed read was because I flipped a coin and that one won for Ed. I'll give you mine. From 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse eight, you know the rest of the chapter that comes before, but it says about love, love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now, I only know in part. Then, I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. How would you like to know as full as God knows you right now, you're going to know you and him fully in the end. And of course, it, be, it ends with this. And now, faith hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is what? Is love. So when I started the series on the parables, maybe I should have started with this, because I know that the sound of the outside voice of the parables has been so distorted to many over the long history of the Christian church. One reason for the distortion or the distorted sound, why people aren't hearing what Jesus is giving us, is basically our fault, clergy, preachers. I shared with you before I started this that most people look upon parables as children's stories. They're supposed to be simple little illustrations that help people on the outside understand how God feels about them. And on some level, that's true. But to those of us on the inside, they're anything but simple, aren't they? Have you found any of the parables that we have studied simple and easy to understand? No. They get complicated real quick because basically we don't want to do our work. Most preachers and pastors teach that this is a children's story answer to some of life's most complex issues of having to deal with life in this broken kingdom. There are no children's story answers to these. And the easy answer part, not grasping for anything that isn't easy, not, not going for anything that is simple, not looking at the scripture itself and finding its context and trying to truly get at what Jesus was actually saying, what those people heard at that time. We'd rather simplify and move on. And that easy part, especially over the long history of our church, has led to some pretty sinister results. I pointed out when, I, when we went through the parable of the Good Samaritan that the overwhelming majority, Dr. Amy Jill Levine in her book, uh, the, the Stories Jesus Told, she looks at the research and the overwhelming majority, 100 or so years of Christian preaching, the overwhelming majority of most preachers and most Christians look upon uh, as who 
in the parable of the Good Samaritan? Who do we really believe we are in the parable of the Good Samaritan? We believe we're the Samaritan, right? We believe that we're the Samaritan because those pastors have done that. They, they ruled, and, 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 just, and just a simple little scratch of the surface that we did when we studied this just looked at, at the basic knowledge of what we know about Jewish Samaritan or Judean Samaritan relationships at the time would negate that. There isn't supposed to be a believer that hears the parable of the Good Samaritan and puts themselves in the role of the Samaritan. Because they see themselves as the good guys. So in the parable of the Good Samaritan, if you're seen as the good guy, then who are the bad guys in the story? Those Jewish guys. Are you getting what I'm getting at? the Jews. See, to approach it that way, it's lazy, it's easy, but it's just plain wrong. Especially considering our history as Christians, our history of trying to explain to people the Jews and the Christians. She says this, uh, Dr. Jill Levine, uh, Amy Jill Levine, she says this. She says, the clergy actually do think they're presenting a challenging message when in fact they are unintentionally and repeating anti-Jewish stereotypes. If the interpreter knows nothing about Jesus' Jewish context other than the stereotype of Jesus came to fix Judaism, so therefore Judaism, whatever it was, must have been bad, then the parables will be interpreted in a deformed way. One very common way parables are interpreted is by drawing a contrast between what Jesus taught and what, quote unquote, the Jews generally understood. Thus, the prodigal son teaches that God loves sinners when the Jews, who are often depicted as the older brother, thought God only loved the righteous and didn't give a rip about sinners. Such a reading would make no sense to anyone who read in the scriptures of Israel, who hears Paul's plea in Ed's scripture reading about Israel, or the stories of Adam and Eve, or Cain and David, and the nation of Israel itself. So I'm hoping yet to still study the lost son, the lost coin, and the lost sheep. I still want to study and end with the Pharisee and the tax collector. But we can't come away after being unwilling to contextualize the language of the New Testament. We can't come away with just the easiest thing to do, and that is to continue harmful stereotypes and use language that perpetuate those. We can't think, cannot, absolutely cannot afford anymore to think that Judaism was something that Jesus came to fix with Christianity. So do you mind if we take a look at just a little bit of history of what the church has done with this idea? And then I'll leave it up to you as to whether or not you believe we should continue in this vein. So when I look at how we got here, the church, 
I begin with the three fundamental foundations of any church or synagogue, by the way, claiming to worship the living God. What are the three things that it should be built on? What are the three things that any religion who claims to have a living God, what are the three things or the three fundamental stones it should be built on? Faith, hope, and what? And love. However, before you even begin, Paul immediately says the greatest of these, though, is what? Is love. Paul has an example of himself. He was a man of great hope. He was a man of great faith, but he had no love, absolutely no love for those who didn't measure up in his mind, who didn't look upon and see as righteous. This is why he immediately qualifies faith and hope with what? With love. The difference between Saul and Paul was that Paul realized that God loved him based simply on the fact that he would have faith and not in his performance as a Pharisee of Pharisees, not in his performance as an obedient son of Abraham. He believed what made him a son of Abraham was to have the faith of Abraham. The difference between Saul and Paul is that he truly believed that the greatest of all things to attribute to a child of God is that they love as they have been loved. This is my commandment, Jesus said, that you have love for one another as I have loved you. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Beloved, let us love one another. He'll say later in a letter to the church, let us love one another because love is from who? Love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And whoever does not love, sorry, whoever does not love has not what? Has not God. For God is what? See, God is not just a loving God. God is love. That's who he is. That's what he is. That's all he is. And then to add to this idea, or at least begin uh, with, just begin the simple words of scripture, and this man, Paul, who used to be Saul's plea with the growing Gentile church, he said, if some of the branches were broken off, You, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in their place to share the rich root of the olive tree. He says there's one olive tree in all. That is the living God of all Israel. There is only one. The prophecy about the Messiah was that he was was a root of Jesse. it, It is that one son of David. There's only one. Gentiles happened to be what? Grafted in. Yes, some of the domestic olives were broken off because of unbelief, but in their place, Gentiles were grafted in. So he says, don't boast over the branches. You guys who are being grafted in, don't boast over the branches. If you do boast, remember that it's not you that supports the root, it's the root that supports you. I'm not sure that Paul knew what was going to happen to the church after he died. 
I'm not sure he would understand the explosion that it undertook, this Gentile explosion. I don't think he had a real idea or impact of what his ministry would do. But he said, you know what, I'm not worried as long as those Gentiles remember that it's the root that supports them. Our Judaic root is our Judaic root. It is what makes us who we are. But has this played out over the last 2,000 years? Is this what most Christianity still believes that they are? A grafted in olive branch to one Jewish root? We don't anymore, do we? The church began to teach that there were actually two trees. And oh, by the way, that Christian tree, it's a better one. Jesus fixed it. Paul went to his grave believing that if we just would do this, everything would be okay. But I wonder what he would think if he saw us trying to live out this two-tree philosophy and that this one that Jesus came to plant is better than the one that came before, when actually the one that came before is Jesus. He's the root, and he always has been. Did the church heed these words? Because she's got an uncertain future ahead of her, especially after the last apostle dies. In the prophecy of the seven churches in Revelation 2, the first post-apostolic era or brand new era is embodied in the church of Ephesus, right? The first church in the seven churches is the church in Ephesus. As I pointed out to you before, a real church planted by Paul. You're studying about him in Sabbath school right now. It's a real church, but it also embodies a prophetic future, if you will, an era of the Christian church. So in that prophecy, her era is up to 100 CE, or up uh, through the first century, from the time that Jesus ascended all the way to the first century. And in that first century, she's doing some pretty good stuff. Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them to be false. This happens to any new church when you're brand new. Any new church, especially that explodes the way the Christian church did across history in that first century. By the way, if the church could continue to grow the way we did in the book of Acts through the first century, oh my goodness, We'd have been home a long time ago. How would you like to number the number of believers in the billions if we were still around today? But this is what happens. Brand new, exploding, uh, whole new different uh, cultures and ideas all coming in at the same time. The church then is bombarded with what is right and what isn't. When, when, you, when you didn't have a general conference session that didn't even come up with at least uh, four or five fundamental beliefs, how do you fight off what comes in that's wrong and right? Ephesus is mostly concerned with fighting off heresy. By the way, still the great heresies of the Christian church all happened in this era. Every heresy that has happened for the next 2,000 years after this is a version of the heresies that happened in the first 100 years. 
So they're doing good stuff, Jesus said. You're fighting it off well. This is how she's dealing with this. The apostles are gone, which means they don't have the automatic uh, um, arbitrator anymore, right? Imagine you had a problem while John was still alive. If you had a problem, is this right or is this right? What'd we do? We just go knock on John's door. Hey, which one's right? John says this one. That's it. You're done. Who's going to argue with John? Well, I know there's a few of us that would argue with John, but you know, right? Church doesn't have that anymore. So they're toiling and they're enduring. They're looking to cleanse and to purify and to keep the church's doctrine and mission cleansed. Keep out the false apostles. Why? Because the one true apostles that they at least knew about, they're all gone now. They must have felt like they were on their own, which they were. He says, I also know that you're enduring patiently, bearing up for the sake of my name, and that you have not what? You have not grown weary. So slap me on the wrist if you think that I'm reaching too far here. But does that sound like a church of great faith and great hope? It does, doesn't it? Great faith and great hope. Enduring patiently. Hanging in there. Holding on. Jesus says, good job. There's one thing, though. I have this one thing against you. You've abandoned what? You've abandoned your love. See, it's the first love too. Most of us interpret this, that when the, uh, the Gentiles in the Ephesian church heard Paul preach, they fell in love. They were talking about their love, their passion that they had at first. That isn't the first love of a Christian, is it? Jesus said, it's not that you loved me, it's that he loved you, right? And in the light of you being loved, all I ask is that you love one another. But the first love is always in the light that the Father loves you. In John about 17 or 18, he tells the disciples that and they are completely blown away. I'm here to tell you, he said, the Father has always loved you. You don't need me to go into an angry father and try to appease him to get what you want. You don't need me to do that anymore. Why? Because the Father loves you himself. He always has. Ephesus doesn't remember that anymore. And now their fight against heresy to cleanse and purify the church is now a performance in order to please a God that they forgot loves them no matter who they are. And you cannot give anymore what you don't what? What you don't have. So the 2,000-year history of the prophetic history of the church is the church looking for that one substitute, looking for that love that they lost at first, that belief that God loves them no matter who they are. The church then turns into a performance-oriented church and then gives way to all temptation that ends up perverting the church to the point to where no one can tell the difference between the false church and the true church anymore. But the one difference between the church of the beasts, the two beasts, and the church of the lamb that was slain, what's the one difference? They both have great faith and great hope, don't they? 
What's the one that the church of the lamb that was slain has that the church of the beast does not? Love. So I believe, if you're thinking about it, if, if it's built on three, if you have two out of three, that's not bad, is it? It ain't bad at all. I come at it from a baseball standpoint. If I got two out of three, man, I'm, I'm, I'm doing something unheard of. Hey, by the way, in baseball, if you get one out of three for your career, you're probably going to be in the Hall of Fame. That meant you batted 333 for a career. 300 is the, is the timeline. You can fail seven out of ten times in baseball, but do it over a career, and you will be in the Hall of Fame. That's pretty good. And then two out of three? Wow. But Jesus said no. It's not enough to have great faith and great hope. The greatest of these is what? By the way, if you take a thousand and you divide it by three, you get 333 and then this perpetuity of 333s all across the line, right? Double it. In other words, great faith, great hope, and only have two out of the three. Guess what? You're now at 666. Hey, don't argue with me. It's the numbers. So I believe that as far as relations between Jewish populations and this growing Gentile church in the Middle East and Europe, it comes off the rails right here, right here at Ephesus. Because the church came off the rails at Ephesus. It'll have some interludes where it gets back on and if we have time, we'll talk a little bit about the next church that happened after this. But it's that first generation of apostolic fathers, that first generation of the apostles who took over for the 12. There was one, his name was Justin Martyr. He lived from 100 to 165 CE. And he began to teach these things. Number one was that God's law was for the Jews alone, is what he was impressed with. The law was only given to them because he misunderstands readings by Paul and everything else. Abraham did not live under it. Jesus did away with it. So Christians now live in a new dispensation. We'll talk about dispensation as we, as we go further. Our dispensation is supposed to be of Christ, not of what? Not of the law. Jews never understood or understand the scriptures. It can only be understood by Christians. And that makes the church the true Israel. He is the first apostolic father and teacher to begin to teach that the, the only proof you need that Judaism was a defective religion needing fixing was that it was those guys that killed Christ. He's the very first one to begin to hint that Jews from here on out should be labeled as Christ's killers. Guys, this is the first generation after the apostles die. This is the first century of the church existing on this planet. Ed, doesn't it sound like he's already uprooted the tree and planted his own? It's where he's headed, isn't it? 
And I think the most devious of these teachings is that the law was made for the Jews. It reveals a hatred for the law and for the people. He argued that the Jews uh, were more of an inherent, they had a more inherent proclivity to sin. That's why they were given the law. The law was given to them to reign in them. He was saying that by nature, Jews are a different kind of human being. He said that they had a natural tendency to be idol worshipers. That's why he gave, God gave them Sabbaths and circumcision so they wouldn't stray too far away. He's concluding that they're inferior worshipers of God. In fact, he'll go on to conclude that circumcision was actually God's punishment. That since God knew that one day they would crucify Jesus, he predestined them to suffer alone of all the peoples of the earth. So imagine with the uh, seeds, if you will, the underpinning of that theology and what happens to the church over the next 200 years. The church undergoes this enormous change and it's shown in two ways. One, it becomes more politically strong and develops a hatred for all things Jewish and related to the Torah. They continue to hate that which they were supposed to be a root of. And by the fourth century, it blows sky high. 313, the Edict of Milan said this, it removes any penalty for persecution for being a Christian. Up until then, Christians were being persecuted for a little while, yes, by certain, uh, by certain uh, forces, if you will, in Israel, but also by Rome. And it was Rome that was persecuting them the most. By the way, seven, after 70 AD, Israel has absolutely no political power to persecute Christians at all anymore. The greatest persecution comes from Rome. So the Edict of Milan removes that. It removes any penalty or persecution for being a Christian. It returns all property previously seized from the church. And it makes Christianity the official religion of the empire. Pretty soon, Constantine, just a, a little while later, okay, it starts the era of Christendom. It begins a Christian empire. By the way, the, the ultimate uh, substitute, according to the beast, for love, for God's love, is empire. Because in the Edict of Constantine, we all know what he did, right? Right? On the venerable day of the sun, let the magistrates and people residing in the cities rest and let all workshops be closed. We know that one, don't we? We use that one. But do we realize why Constantine did it? It's because this growing politically powerful church is just truly hating all things Jewish. It keeps going the fifth through the seventh centuries and the various uh, emperors come. The Theodosians codes, the, the uh, Justinian codes, the Visigothic codes, all of them are full of anti-Jewish rhetoric. All of them are full of anti-Jewish decrees and edicts and laws. They are being subjugated and kicked out and moved from most of the places into the farthest corners of the empire. The first major part 
on the part of the church to truly eradicate Judaism on a large scale is by the Visigoth kingdom in Spain in the late 7th century. You want a bit of irony? You know the only thing that stopped them was when the Visigoths were defeated by the Islam empire. Who saved Judaism in Europe in the 7th century? The Muslims. Because the church was this close to wiping them out. By the way, in 1492, they will evict every Jew from Spain, which up until that point had become the largest convocation of Jews in Europe after 135 when they were completely kicked out of the Holy Land for good. And in 1492, when they were all kicked out of Spain, there was only one place in all of Europe and in their minds on the entire planet where they were safe. You know where it was? The Vatican. Two times that the Jews were nearly eradicated. One, they were saved by the Muslims. The second, they were saved by the papacy. Until, by the way, the cardinal that had come up with the edict to kick them out of Spain, about 100 years, I mean, about 50 years later, he becomes pope. So guess what happens to him then? The 11th century, 1096 through 1291, we all know this era as the what? (laughs) I can't get it to work today. I should have just left them alone, the Visigothic Code, the Crusades. And you say, well, well, Greg, I I thought that the Crusades were against the Muslims. They They were to take the Holy Land back from the Muslims. Well... Let me ask you this. The powerful and the wealthy that were cheating and killing each other at the time, you had bishops fighting kings. You had churches giving away uh, bishops uh, uh, to, to anybody who could pay for it. Do you think Jews would fare well in a conflict like this? In fact, it got to the point to where it was a whole lot simpler just to pretty much wipe out everybody in front of you who didn't look like you. As we all knew, the Muslims had a particular hue to their skin. Most of the Jews did too. So pretty soon they were just killing everybody who had darker skin. And also it was a whole lot easier to kill the Jews rather than pay them the money back that they owed them. So they didn't fare well in the Crusades either. So we're saying, okay, all right, Greg, well, you're talking about the beast. You're talking about the the time where the beast was absolutely positively winning. How about the Reformation? What did the Protestants do? Hang on, guys, hang on, because the the Reformation is coming. Luther really tried to reach out to the Jews, but when they wouldn't convert, he turned on them. And when he turned on them, he turned on them in a vicious way. And in an article that he labeled about Jews and their lies, he wrote it in 1543. He said, finally, I wish to say this for myself. If God were to give me no other Messiah that such as the Jews wish and hope for, I would much, much rather be a pig than a human being. That's Martin Luther, y'all.
By the mid-18th century, there's a movement in North America that's codified by the Plymouth Brethren, led by J.N. Darby, would become known as dispensationalism. It's an idea or theory that put forth that God's salvation moves in history in eras or dispensations. Here's what the dispensation says about the difference between Israel and the church. Dispensationalists profess that there exists a historic and demographic distinction between Israel and the Christian church. For them, Israel is an ethnic nation consisting of Hebrews, Israelites, beginning with Abraham. The church, on the other hand, consists of all saved individuals in this present dispensation. From the birth of the church in Acts until the time of the rapture. Dispensation teaches that Israel is an ethnic nation. By the way, Israel, by the time this happens, Israel has not been around since 135 AD. And in the 1700s, J.N. Darby is writing that Israel is an ethnic nation. Do you see the problem? If Israel is Ethnic, in other words, it is based on a race, but the church is based on his grace. Which one out of the two do you think will get persecuted? Or can be? See, Christians get the new and improved dispensation, Israel gets the law. In other words, God saves you by giving you the law and you'll be saved by the better way that you keep the law. But then Jesus came and gave the church grace so we get saved by grace. By the way, that was done in the 1700s. By the early 20th century, it'll catch fire with the publication of the Schofield Study Bible. It becomes so popular that the Bible is the first one to integrate dispensationalism into his study methods. You'd be hard-pressed to find any mainstream evangelical denomination that doesn't believe in dispensationalism in some form. By the way, we do. They're the first people to come up with the idea that the millennium comes after the second coming. That the second coming is premillennial. Our difference is, is that we believe the millennium happens in heaven. They believe it's gonna happen on earth. Speaking of the 19th century, is there any hope for the Jews in enlightenment? In 19th century, Jew-hating is seen as vulgar and barbaric, but Wilhelm Marr, a German journalist and Jew-hater, by the way, coins the term for the first time we've ever heard it, anti-Semitism. Now, the hatred is disguised as an ism. It can be respected or discussed as any other philosophy of the day. Socialism, nationalism, liberalism, conservatism, fundamentalism, communism, feminism. Now, hating a group of people can be hid behind intellectual conversation and theory. eighteen forty three Charles Darwin publishes a paper that by eighteen forty nine becomes the origin of the species. I've told you before, I don't think there's any fuel to modern racism more than the fuel that was added by the theory of evolution.
See, if evolution teaches that we evolved from inferior or uh, inferior uh, species, and by death and living and death and dying eventually become uh, superior, then guess what? If you really are an inferior species, there's nothing that can be done. If you're further down the line on the evolutionary scale, it's not my fault. It's evolution's fault. And those of us who are superior can do whatever we want now with those who we believe is inferior. Nothing we can do. So if we see uh, certain human beings as inferior, can we enslave them like animals if we want to? Well, evolution says that we can can we look upon a group as in, that have a proclivity to evil, that have a proclivity to not doing what God says? Can we do what we want with them? Well, yeah. Evolution says so. God says so. So let me just ask you this. They're now labeled, Jews are, as an ethnicity or a race. Are they? Yes, and what? And no. You can become Jewish, you could be born to a Jewish mother, and if you're born to a Jewish mother, according to thousands of years of, of uh, Judaic, um, uh, the way that they look upon their genealogies, then you are. You can be born into it, but also you can what? You can convert to Judaism, can't you? Do you have to be born into a Jewish family in order to become Jewish? In fact, they were converting even back in Jesus' day. So are they a race or an ethnicity? Yes. And what? And no. See, if evolution says that Jews are genetically inclined to the horrible things they're capable of, then what are you blaming us for? They're labeled as a religion. Are they a religion? Yes. And no. Most Jewish folk consider themselves non-religious or devout. Most. After 1948, they're now labeled again as a political and geographical nation. Are they? Yes, and what? Do Jews live in Israel? Yes, they do. But do you know that there are more Jews living in New York City than living in all of Israel? See, when your theology and when your cultural identity and sensitivity to look at a group of people and try to lump them into some sort of category somewhere, it just becomes convenient and it becomes easy. But don't you understand, don't we understand, it also becomes dangerous, especially if our theology is doing it. So anti-Semitism after all this, coming up to the 20th century, only needs one more ingredient for the inevitable outcome. And what's the ingredient that it needs? A group of sociopaths and homicidal anti-Semitic people led by a maniac with enough power to carry out the inevitable. And the camps became operational in 1937. 
And it leads to the worst result that no one ever dreamed of. And forgive me for how harsh this sounds, and every Christian church on the planet stood by and watched it happen. Because somewhere in our theology, we believe that it was just simply inevitable, that it was God's will. And it includes us, by the way. I've shared with you before Adventism's record during the Holocaust. I won't go through it all completely again. But we believed. I'll just, uh, just one thing. In 1939, the, the Gestapo began investigating all Christian churches in the Third Reich, looking for what they called Jewish members or members that had Jewish interest. In other words, they were looking for Jewish converts to these Christian churches. And they were asking the churches then to see, and they were gathering information to see how many of these Jewish interests were in these churches. And after they brought the, the, uh, uh, the, all the information back to the Fuhrer, the Third Reich then demands that every Christian church within the Reich expel every one of their Jewish members who have Jewish interest. The Adventist church in Europe decided to comply with that. There were hundreds of Adventists that we have no idea what happened to them that were expelled from churches because once they were expelled from churches, they no longer had the protection of the church anymore. Now, as this one picture always gets me, that's the assembly room of, of an Adventist uh, conference administration office. It has uh, two signs on the door in four languages saying that Jews are forbidden to enter. That would be like if you went out to the conference office today and saw that sign on the door. We had heroes, by the way. Joseph Wiedner. We had a lot of Adventist heroes. The point is, is there was never one church that stood up. There was never one church that stood up and said, enough, this, this can't happen. There wasn't a nation that stood up for them. There wasn't a church that stood up for them. because we had great faith and we had great hope and we thought we were doing what God told us to do because Romans 13 says, let every person be subject to what? To the governing authorities for there's no authority except that from God, those authorities that exist and have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed. Scripture, it says it right there. That's what we must be doing. But what did we leave out? The love. At least love would get them to look at the next verse. It said, for rulers are not to be a what? A terror to good conduct. What happens if a ruler becomes a terror to good conduct? Who's going to stop them? Again, the only thing that dictates is not faith and not hope and not how well we know our Bibles or our scriptures. Because these were good Bible students that studied these, but still came up with what we came up with. 
So I'm always asked, Greg, why are we talking about this now? Right? I don't know if you remember your first Revelation seminar. I remember mine. You know the part in the Revelation seminar when we go through the 70-week prophecy of Daniel? You know, and we see the crucifixion of Christ in the middle of the week, you know, and it goes all the way to 34 AD. 34 AD, what was it that we teach happened? The stoning of Stephen, the gospel goes to the Gentiles, and up until just a couple years ago, we used to also add Israel rejected by God. And the church becomes the new Israel. That was in my first Revelation seminar. And, and I, I never had anybody when that was said in a Revelation seminar. And by the way, I used to teach that in Bible studies. I never had one person then open up to Romans 11 and say, but I ask, has God rejected his people? By no means. How was it we let that go for 100 years? When Paul's telling us, has God rejected Israel? Has he rejected any Jew based on their Jewishness? I've heard comments in church. I was preaching about how Miriam not only uh, found uh, Moses' own mother to be able to nurse him after she put them, you know, after Pharaoh's daughter found him, not only was able to find his own mother to nurse him, she got paid for it. Pharaoh's daughter paid her to nurse her own son. And one sweet little old lady, 92 years old, third generation Adventist in the front row said, oh, typical Jew. I heard a prominent evangelist at a very large attended camp meeting talk about being Jewed down. Just a few weeks ago, I had somebody share with me a prophetic interpretation on the 70 weeks that they, had, uh, that they had been working on, and they concluded that the 70 weeks close was the end of probation for all Jews. This is just a couple weeks ago. I watched a documentary last week that was exposing the corruption and the spiritual and sexual abuse from an extremely popular, large Christian worldwide megachurch. And there was this section about their New York City location is that they used to have a VIP section for any celebrities that would come because that church had a very uh, popular celebrity pastor and it was attracting celebrities so they were reserving you know, seats for them. And that regular people, regular worshipers weren't allowed in those seats. And the guy described this, he said, it's exactly like what they do in Jewish synagogues when they reserve seats for high rollers. I talk about it now because, you know, we never stopped and pondered. I remember Dr. Dukan in, in uh, Jewish Life and Thought asking us, you know, he said there's only one church on the entire planet that looked at their history and all that led up to the Holocaust and there was only one church that decided, you know what, maybe we'd better figure something else out because this didn't work. Only one church offers a stream of study called post-Holocaust theology. And by the way, it's at Notre Dame. 
Maybe as Christians, we should have stopped right there at 1948 and said, you know what, we need to start over if, if everything that we came led to this. But we just roll merrily along. And we can't figure out why Jews don't want to listen to us, why Jews don't agree with our interpretation of, 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 of Isaiah 53, uh, why we can't get close to him because you know what, we're, we, we have Sabbath, we're just like you. If we think we can give Jews the right information and we can buddy up to them because we happen to have a letter of the law understanding of the Sabbath like they do. Daniel Sisto was preaching in his church in Virginia, in Charlottesville, in 2017, just after that Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. And yes, the one that featured neo-Nazis carrying tiki torches, KKK members in their hoods, and, and swastikers uh, on their flags, and yes, chanting, Jews will not replace us. And he stood up in his church and he said, I'm not okay because white supremacists and white nationalists and neo-Nazis and KKK members and other domestic terrorist churches thought they could come into my town and cause my friends to fear. And the moment that that sentence left my lips, he said, several people in the congregation stood up and walked out. It's an Adventist church. And later an elder felt it necessary to come to his home and say, you know what? I'm pretty sure that nobody in the church is a member of the KKK, but we all have friends that are, so you should not talk about them like that. I talk about this now because we've been trying to roll merrily along on great faith and great hope. And love still seems to be missing, still seems to be uh, absent from tempering our idea of what it means to reach out to people and our idea of who belongs and who doesn't. I talk about it now because I want to remind us that this madness stops the second that a church decides to remember that God loves them and they strive then to love others as they have been loved. It stops in its tracks. It'll stop in a heartbeat if we decide to stop it. See, after Ephesus came Smyrna. And I believe, I truly believe that Smyrna listened to what Jesus said. Go find your first love back. And Smyrna then exists for uh, about two or 300 years and they are persecuted right and left. Christians are getting slaughtered by the empire by three different emperors. Saint Sebastian, you all know uh, that one, you know, a hundred and something arrows, uh, uh, um, that, uh, you know, tied to the tree. We've all seen that. Saint Cecil, Saint Agnes, all of them martyred in that era. And all Jesus can say to the church at Smyrna, by the way, the church at Smyrna, only one of two churches that Jesus has nothing bad to say about, Smyrna and Philadelphia, the two churches that love. Philadelphia is even named love, but Smyrna is the church that acts on their love. They're willing to be martyred. And they're willing to do it for others. In fact, Jesus tells them, he says, you know what, guys? 
I'll see you on the other side. I've got no good news for you here. This is what you will endure. And at the end of the era, we know what stopped that era of persecution is when the empire decided to make Christianity its official religion. And then it will go all the way to 1798 before Jesus has one good thing to say about the church anymore. And then that brief period, (laughs) and then comes the last church that you and I belong to that he has absolutely nothing good to say because we've locked him on the other side of a door. We've got no chance. We have absolutely no chance if we're gonna leave him outside the door. So too at the present time, Ed, you read to us, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So I know how hard this is to listen to, especially at 1215. I know, I really do. See, but you and I, we decided that we would sign off a philosophy that no matter who they are, no matter who we come in contact with, no matter who has decided at any given time that these people are unworthy of love, you and I have decided that they are going to receive the grace of God. So I have confidence in us. I really do. But are we ready to love as we've been loved? I'll leave this with you. Brennan Manning, in his book, um, A Furious Longing, he said, he shares a story. Several years ago, Edward Farrell, a priest from Detroit, went on a two-week summer vacation to Ireland to visit relatives. His one living uncle was about to celebrate his 80th birthday. On the great day, Ed and his uncle got up early, and it was before dawn. They took a walk along the shores of Lake Killarney and stopped to watch the sunrise. They stood side by side for a full 20 minutes and then resumed walking. Ed glanced at his uncle, saw that his face had broken into a broad smile. Ed said, Uncle Seamus, you look very happy. I am. And Ed asked, how come? And his uncle replied, the father of Jesus is very fond of me. If the question were put to you, Do you honestly believe that God likes you? Not loves you. See, because theologically, he has to love you, right? According to theology, but likes you. How would you answer? God loves by necessity of his nature. Without the eternal interior generation of love, he would cease to be God. But if you could answer, the father is very fond of me, there would come a relaxedness, a serenity, and a compassionate attitude toward yourself that is a reflection of God's own tenderness. If you want to, if we're struggling to love anybody because somebody has painted them with some particular brush, ethnically, racially, culturally, politically, we all start in one place. It's to remember that God loves you. If we start there, we have a chance. We have a chance. For we are ambassadors of Christ. 
Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So I just wanted to remind you because as we get closer to this language, even in the New Testament, we're going to see words like referred to, the Jews did this, the Jews said that. Pharisee does not equal Jewish. In fact, in a lot of ways, Pharisee does not equal Pharisee. The problems that the Pharisees caused were not all Pharisees. Even the Pharisees themselves recognized that they, recognized that they had sore spots in their own party. That comes from the uh, Judaic Encyclopedia describing the Pharisees of the day. So I'm real careful with my language and I'm going to be as we continue to study because we always have to be reminded. So you'll hear me use words like self-righteous rather than Jewish. you hear me use words like religionist rather than the, the Jews and other Jews. I, I've gotten to the point to where even the word Jews sounds wrong coming out of the wrong lips, doesn't it? I want everybody, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, Jew and Greek, to be able to hear the outside voice. So I just wanted to remind us of where we came from, to warn us about our language and what we teach other people. And we'll get there. We have a chance. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for holding on with me with this.